0: On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Jay Goldman is a New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company, Forbes Technology and HBR Advisory Council member, and co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. Jay thinks he might be the luckiest guy in the world because he got to co-found Sensei Labs and spends his days working hard to invent the future of work alongside his amazing crew. He's focused on technology design and the art of leadership. In addition to writing the book, The Decoded Company, he also, as we say, contributed to the business review. He frequently speaks to teams and companies about the future of work, including TEDx, NASA, Harvard Business School, Google, and Twitter's world headquarters. Jay, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Corey.
0: So listen, I know we're going to get into all that great background, and we're going to talk about post-merger integration, and you've had some experience doing a spinoff and raising capital and all this great stuff that relates to deals. But before we get to any of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is, Somebody who has done all of that, wasn't it? But you tell me.
1: Actually, my dad was in the software industry. So I grew up around a software entrepreneur who had started a software company. This was pre-internet. So they were selling software on CDs and distributing (laughs) it out. Actually, probably software on floppy disks at first and then software on CDs later on. And he had a very successful run building enterprise software and sold his company to a database company called Sybase, which some of the listeners may recall. And so he had a very successful exit at the end of it. And it created a role model for me in wanting to pursue a similar path. So entrepreneurship and particularly in software and technology was always very much in the forefront for me.
0: Interesting. So that's great. So many of our guests—they had no clue they'd end up where they are. And then occasionally we get somebody who you can actually see some thread from even when they were younger. So that's fascinating. What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid, or it could be early in your career. What's the first thing you'd consider a deal that comes to mind?
1: Well, I've always been involved in sales as a founder of a business before Sensei Labs, which is our current business. Many years ago, at the beginning of my career, I had started an agency called Radiant Core. And as the co-founder and really salesperson, selling deals for Radiant Core is probably really where I would think of as kind of the first significant deals. And then we actually sold Radiant Core to one of our clients in the end. So that would be, I think, probably for your listeners, what they might think of as the first deal that I ever did.
0: Yeah. Why don't we start there then and work our way up? Uh, So talk about that first deal, not the sales side of it, because as you alluded, it's not those kind of deals that we focus on, it's it's, it's the inorganic growth, but talk about that first exit. You said you sold it to a customer, right? Yeah.
1: And that's an unlikely exit for an agency. We had started the business. It was a group of four of us at the beginning, myself, technical co-founder, creative co-founder, and then sort of an all-round customer client service, Technical, et cetera, co founders. There were four of us at the beginning. And we had always envisioned that we would get into building products. That was sort of the path we wanted to go down. But like many early product companies, we weren't in a position to raise a seed round of capital. And we did have very marketable skills that we could sell on an hourly basis. So we started an agency thinking we would get into making products that is a very hard transition to make. I'm now successfully on the other side of it. So we can speak more about how to actually make that transition after. But at the time, that seemed like a prohibitively difficult thing. And in a way, you become addicted to your services revenue because it's not only keeping the lights on, but eventually as the business grows, it's paying your salaries, And hopefully your salaries are growing and you're becoming more and more successful. You start scaling the business, but those are hungry mouths to feed. And so you continue to need to scale the services revenue that goes along with it. So we were several years in, we'd grown the business quite well. We're about 10 people or so continuing to scale. We were now at that point, two co-founders remaining in the business. And We would sit down and do a kind of annual review together. How was our last year? What do we want to do for the year ahead? We sat down over lunch right at the beginning of the year, and we both kind of said, I wanted to get into products, and I'm getting a little tired of being in the services business, and so maybe it's time for us to think about what that looks like to get out of this. Do we put all our chips in to building a product, get out of the services business? It's going to be hard. We probably have to let some people go. That's going to suck. Do we find maybe a buyer for this business? And so we started to have those conversations and those thoughts. And we had a client at the time who was a very active client. They were consuming basically as much of our time as we were able to give to them. And I'd been having conversations with their CEO. And their ultimate goal was to build an in-house team. We were really a digital agency. So we were doing a lot of development work for them, a lot of design work for them. And I said to him one day on a call, the team you would build and the team that we have are very similar in terms of their makeup. Would you ever consider just buying our company and bringing our team in-house? And he got very excited about that prospect. And so within three weeks, we had the full structure of a deal in place and we exited the business to him and we stayed on for a while. I stayed on for less time than my co-founder did. And that was kind of the first deal done.
0: I love that. And it's fascinating. You're right. That's not your typical buyer, but but it does happen. I know of other situations like that. And the other thing that you raised that's really interesting, and we'll talk about it later as we get more into what you're doing now, what you've built now in Sensei Labs. In fact, I won't give much in the way of detail because it's confidential, but I was literally just on a call earlier today with an attorney friend of mine who, whether it's attorneys or accountants or anybody who's generally fee-for-service, billing time, or even if you figure out a way, I mean, we do a lot of fixed-fee stuff and whatever, we figure out some models that are better than just selling out time. But even with that, the scalability of it is limited and or takes a lot of people, right? And it's certainly not like a technology play as probably the thing most on the other extreme, right? Where in theory, right. you can. So, and the idea of being able to create products being able recurring revenue certainly subscription models have become like I mean when I was growing up you didn't subscribe to anything except for maybe a newspaper and now I get notices from my technology saying do you want to look at all your subscriptions because maybe you don't know what you subscribe to and they're actually right <laughs> I have no idea yeah. so talk this a little bit even though you raised may not be but I think it's a fascinating thing a lot of businesses are trying to move from that services model to a product model or from a FIFA service and or whatever model to a recurring revenue from a project to a recurring revenue model. Talk a little bit about how you did eventually figure that out and that'll probably tie into some of what you're doing now.
1: There's a whole gradient there from straight fee for service, hourly based to fixed time fee to a sort of blend where maybe you're selling some software or some product along with some service delivery all the way out to pure subscription revenue from a software product. And you get all the way out to sort of the extreme on that in a no touch model, typically credit card sign up. Typically, a product scaling business where the growth happens through the product growth, not through marketing growth. And so product-led growth businesses, as they're called. And all the way at that extreme, you never speak to your customers because your margin disappears as soon as you actually engage with anybody. So aside from maybe a bit of tech support, you're in a pure subscription-based model. So we're looking at a pretty broad gradient here. The challenge that most services businesses have in getting to the product side of that gradient, wherever they're going to fall on it, is you have to actually think about the business very differently. Scaling a services business, at least let's say scaling a profitable services business, means you sell more hours and you hire more people, and then you sell more hours and you hire more people. That's There's not a lot of magic to this. That's how mm. those businesses scale. To sell a product, you have to make an upfront investment into the business because at the beginning, you don't have a product to sell. And that means you have no revenue coming in the door at the beginning. And so you have to think about this as an investment. It's rare to start a services business by going out and hiring 100 people and then finding some use for their time. So the investment mentality is very different when you're doing those two different types of businesses. Yes. The startup world, we've all kind of come to know from the Silicon Valley model and then other models around the world, you might go out and raise some money at the beginning of that product business and say, we're going to maybe do a seed round or even a Series A round. If you're in the AI business right now, you're going to do a $100 million Series A round. That still makes no sense to me, but I guess you have to buy a lot of hardware. So, okay, you're going to go out and raise some money from investors. You can't raise money from investors to start a services business because that potential upside and outcome just isn't there on the other end of the business. You can exit a services business, but you won't exit it typically for the same type of multiple on revenue because people aren't on subscriptions. And the margin on delivery of those hours of services are not nearly as good as the margins on software. As you said, not nearly as scalable as a business. So you start off from a very different mentality as you think about how to grow the business. One is funded continuously bootstrapped by the fact that you're selling hours. One is an upfront investment mentality. Those are very discordant from each other. To shift a business from we watch our margins and we think about how much we're charging and we're very careful about hourly rates and all of that, to we're going to make a big investment in building something and we're not going to have revenue coming in from it requires a very significant thinking shift. And that's very difficult for most services, businesses to do. The second thing is, as a result of that, you'll have all kinds of systems built inside of your business that are built around the idea that you charge by the hour for your work, whether you're doing fixed fee or whether you're doing hourly, still kind of nets out to the same thing in the end. So even if you think about something as basic as your charter of accounts and the setup of your accounting software, it is set up and all of your reporting is built out around this fee for service model. And when you start to think about reporting out on a software business, you have a very fundamentally different set of KPIs that you need to be able to track and report on and often can't get there from the setup of your accounting system, even right down to that general ledger and your charter of accounts aren't going to lend themselves to being able to report on the kinds of things you need to be able to report on. So if you think about something like you're a services Business and you charge by the hour, and you want to become a software business and you're going to track annual recurring revenue. Those two concepts are radically different from how you track it, where the data lives, how you're going to report on it, what those dashboards look like, even if they're in Excel. That is a big shift to make as a business. And then I'd say the last thing is people. You hire a certain type of people to work in a services business. Some of their skills will be the same as you need. So if you're a web development shop, and you're charging for the hour to build websites for people, and then you decide to build a web app, you've got developers who whose set are probably applicable across both. There's some differences here. You may not think about performance the right way if you're going to build a highly scalable web app compared to some websites for clients. So it may not be a complete mapping, but close enough. You'll have lots of people in your services business, though, whose skill set is not applicable. And so now you have to think about how you're going to make that shift. And that creates a lot of negative energy in the business. If those people get wind of the idea that you're thinking about becoming a product company, they're going to fight pretty hard against that shift because it's their jobs on the line. And that means you're going to have to part ways with people, which is always a scary and difficult thing to do. There are Lots of examples out there of this failing. There are few examples of it succeeding. It is a very difficult transition to make. I can tell you a little bit about how we made that transition.
0: Yeah, I'd love to go there, but let me just take a moment. I want to just provide a couple of things you said for the audience. One is if there's anything I talk about that maybe people get, I don't think the listeners get tired of, of in fact the comments we get, they appreciate it, but I talk about it a lot is mindset shift, right? Anytime we're gonna, whether it's becoming an entrepreneur from an employee, whether it's becoming a deal maker from being an entrepreneur, because there are plenty of entrepreneurs who build their business organically, but they're not deal makers, it's a different mindset. And certainly this shift from service business to product business, it's a sort of different thinking, right? It's a different mindset conversation. And without the mindset, I don't care what tools or whatever; it's not going to happen. So I wanted to just highlight that point. This is a great entree for you to talk about Sensei Labs and what it does, how you developed it as a product, as a software company, in an area that that a lot of other folks actually do through maybe consultants, right? Who actually do build their hours or project phase. Right. So you know, I think it's a good segue right into that.
1: Yeah, I come back often, and I think as an industry, we come back often to Mark Andreessen's quote that software is eating the world. And so if you think about anything that's out there today, almost anything that's out there today, software will probably find a way to disrupt that thing. Obviously, you're going to get into some things that require hands and physical interaction. But aside from that, software will find a way to eat it. And I think that only becomes more true in an age of AI. So if we look at the things that the current large language models and generative AI have very quickly become able to do quite well, they're not necessarily the things we expected that AI would be able to do two years ago. If you go back in time two years, and you ask people about the threat of AI taking jobs, a favorite topic of people that get alarmist about things like this, they would say, oh, well, I certainly wouldn't want to be a truck driver. It turns out, Truck driving is a very difficult thing to do for AI models and autonomous driving in general is actually really difficult. But if you'd asked those people who's going to be safe, they would have said probably the creatives. It's going to take a long time for AI to be able to write, copy or generate images. It turns out that that's actually a lot easier than driving trucks. So the thing we now have are generative AI models that are able to generate content, write marketing, copy, generate images, maybe not perfectly. I like the analogy of AI as a co-pilot much more than I like the analogy of it replacing people's jobs, I think will be there for a long time where it's a huge boost to productivity for certain disciplines and domains. I say all of that because if you are running a services business today, almost regardless of what that services business is, aside from kind of those physical things that do require somebody in the field, but if you're a knowledge working service business, and I would include consulting firms, I would include marketing agencies and the like. You have to be looking at which parts of our business are going to become disrupted by this software in the very near future, perhaps nearer future than you expected would be the case. It may also and very likely will open up new roles that you didn't have before. So, for example, in this moment in time in the AI space, there is a new job description out there for someone called a prompt engineer. That's someone who has become very good at writing the prompts for a particular large language model, whether it's mid-journey on the image generation side or ChatGPT GPT or Bing or BARD or whatever it is on the text side. And they have kind of learned the magic spells and the incantations that deliver the best results from those AI models. And so for now, there's a job called prompt engineer. That won't remain a job for very long because the AI models will get better and we won't need the same complexity of prompt engineering. But I would think about all of that maybe as a sort of aside. If you run a services business today, you need to start to think not that far out into the future. What happens as roles inside your company? And I expect that this will be kind of bottom up. So if you think about the most junior roles on your team, let's say you have analysts who are doing a lot of Analyst work on data that is coming in from your clients, or if you're doing a lot of video production, they're maybe doing color grading or things like that. Those are the first roles that are going to go. But yeah. that's also in the typical pyramid model of a services business where the bulk of your revenue comes from. So if you have few people at the top who are your sort of top billers and earners. From an hourly rate perspective but they earn the fewest number of hours and then down at the bottom of the pyramid are the workers who earn the majority of that that's where that ai layer is going to come in first anyway that wasn't actually the question you asked but i think i'm
0: I'm glad you i'm glad you went down that maybe we'll call it tangent in terms of the question but it's important because it's such a important thing i just i recorded it'll probably air a couple of months before this episode but I recorded a solo cast in which I was looking at where I was just doing a state of like the first half of the 2013 deal market. Right. And we looked at some of the stats and read some articles on where VC money was going. And there was certainly a pullback, significant pullback in in VC and and private equity investment. But the huge exception to that, right. Was AI. AI funding was off the charts. Right. So that's the area. Everybody's talking about it. And I think you're right. I'm not necessarily in, in the way. I mean, Whenever I see the technology shift, and I've been around a while now, it's so interesting. And this comes back to the mindset conversation. So interesting. Some people are like on the cutting edge of it. It's going to change the entire world. It's going to take over everything, right? And this is not just with AI. It's happened before with other stuff. within <laughs> Other people are like, oh, I remember um, when robo-advice started to come into the financial services space, all the investment advisors, we represent a lot of them. There were some that were like, oh, no robot, no whatever software is going to ever replace me. We provide customized service and whatever. And then other people were like, oh, my God, this is going to change the entire industry, right? Lawyers are worried now that they're going to be out of work because AI is. And it's never, of course, the extremes. Right. And the smarter people are doing exactly what you say, this sort of, okay, where in my business is going to get disrupted? Not that I'm going to be gone, although maybe there'll be a couple industries that are disrupted. I mean, when they went from cold press to hot press, I mean, from a hot press to cold press in the printing industry, we used to represent a lot of the newspapers, all the pressmen, which is what they were called back then, okay. they, they didn't only didn't lose their jobs because they were unionized. And they ended up like coming in and not doing anything for years and getting paid. But they had been replaced by digital, right? In the printing, because you didn't need hot press anymore. You didn't need people working those machines. In a micro level, obviously, there's the, that kind of disruption. But we've seen in a macro level that there's always other jobs that replace it. And also the fact that the firms that don't take any either to extremes when they look at the impact of these technologies is going to affect their businesses and they use it to their advantage. Those are the ones who, who end up winning. So any case. Yeah, uh,
1: exactly. Yeah, I, I yeah. completely agree. It's, it's never as black and white as people think that it's going to be. There's a million shades of gray between those two extremes. And you can go right back to what was the first real technology automation that came in? And I'm not talking about the wheel. You could go all the way back to there. But I mean, if you sort of go back to the industrial revolution and you look at the creation of steam engines and then really the first mass automation was automated looms that took over the weaving industry. And if you go back to that and look at the statements that people made, they're very similar to the statements people Mm -hmm. are making about AI today. And yes, there aren't manual loom operators anymore. But there's a million other jobs that didn't exist when the fear was what happens to all of the loom operators, what happens to the lamplighters who go around lighting the lamps, like all of those thing. jobs. Hmm. Yes, for those people, and in that cohort of people who had that job at that time, that is a life changing event, we don't That's need right. lamplighters anymore so now you got to go find something else to do and get retrained on something else but. At a societal level, this is not nearly the doom and gloom everybody's going to be replaced by AI vision. And if you have started to experiment with AI, and if you haven't, you really need to go out and start to play around, even just to get a sense of the capabilities, sign up for an open AI account, start using Bing, chat, or Google Bard on your searches instead of just using the search interface. I think it's important that you start to understand where the bright spots are in the technology and what it's good at, but also where it fails and what it's not. And remember, and I'll say this as a general statement, a lot of what it answers is not necessarily true. So don't be lured into thinking that the answer you got back from chat GPT or Bing or Bart was exactly the correct thing because it does hallucinate from time to time. And so don't fall victim to that. But all that to say, yeah, let's get back to I, to,
0: to what let, deal, let's get, back yeah, to get to deals. Get to, to what you're doing now, and because we've set the stage for you creating a business, a software product that handles some things that maybe more bodies did on a consulting basis, on a fee for service. Um. So, what is it that exactly you do, and how does it relate to deals and specifically MA?
1: Okay. So, what happened along the way? We were building the parent company. Sensei Labs is called Click Health. K L I C K. Click is a life science commercialization partner for lack of a better term a marketing agency they work in the life science space with primarily biopharma to bring life-saving therapies to market and they help those companies right from the pre-commercial stage through commercialization and then on click was just recently named the number two health agency in the world at Con, So it's grown quite significantly, is about 1500 or so people today, 10 offices around the world, a few hundred million in revenue. So Click is a sizable business today. I had the good fortune to join Click when it was only about 130 people. And my other two co-founders in Sensei Labs were actually already there when I joined Click. So they go back even further. Our president and co-founder Benji was employee number eight or nine at Click. And our CTO and co-founder, Darcy, has been in the Click family for about 17 or so years. So we're old timers in this kind of family, uh, as it were. Yeah. So we joined and we're part of building Click into the business that it is today, which is a really meteoric growth story. Click has grown 30 to 40% year over year since it was founded, which, as you know, becomes harder and harder to do as you get to be a bigger sure. business. Sure. And so we would get asked a lot, what's the magic behind that ability to grow. And I said one day to the two co-founders of Click, Liram Siegel and Aaron Goldstein, I think we should write a book about this because what we do at Click and the way we run this business is very different than the way most businesses are run. And it would be easier to answer this question by pointing people to the book than to have to keep answering it over and over. And in the search for talent and the best possible people we could bring into this business, having a book out there even if it doesn't sell well, but we can point people to it and they can learn about our culture, will be helpful from a recruiting perspective. So we decided to write a book. We brought on a fourth co-author, a very good friend of mine named Rahaf Harfouche. Rahaf was a researcher at the World Economic Forum at the time. She'd worked with Don Tapscott on some of his books. Some of your listeners may know Don's work. And so she came on board to join us as a researcher and co-author on the book. The book is called The Decoded Company. It came out in 2014. And we got extremely lucky with the timing of the book. We wrote a book about big data and talent centricity at exactly the right moment in time, yeah. exactly when those two things became really big topics. And as a result, the book became a New York Times bestseller, which was an extraordinary journey for us. It gave Liram and myself the opportunity to speak all over the world, some of the places you mentioned in the opening. And as we were doing those talks, and we were talking about the platform we had built for Click. Called Genome. Everywhere that we spoke about this and we talked about Decoded and the principles behind it and introduced Genome, we would come off stage to a lineup of people who wanted to know where they could buy Genome. And the answer was you couldn't. It was a proprietary platform we had built for ourselves. It was never intended to be a product, it was running click behind the scenes. But we started to think well, maybe this is actually something we need to think about. Is there an opportunity to commercialize this? We seem to have met some unmet market need here that there might be a real product around so as we were having that thought we were out on the speaking tour we got approached by a ceo who today is actually a very well-known ceo his name is matt ishbia that name rings a bell for some of your listeners it's because he recently bought the phoenix suns nba team so may have come across his name in the news Matt is an extraordinary leader and CEO. He had been on a tour of our office at Click and seen a demo of Genome. And so he kept trying to get us to sell it to him. And we kept saying, it's not for sale, you can't buy it. And eventually, he got tired of that answer. And he called us and said, look, I'm either going to build the system for myself or you're going to sell it to me. But if I have to go and build it for myself, you are no longer allowed to call yourselves entrepreneurs. And that was like, we're entrepreneurs. Like, that's our thing. So that was like the gauntlet. Okay, fine. Matt, will sell you the system. You can be customer number one. He negotiated us into a 10-year subscription agreement on the first subscription we ever sold because he believed that this was going to be a really big platform. And he wanted to secure that customer number one spot in the history of Sensei Labs. And so we signed our first subscription deal in January 2015. It took us about six months to get the platform ready for anybody outside of Click to use. We had all kinds of funny things happen through that journey where we discovered places that engineers had just made decisions that made perfect sense if you were building this to work inside of Click, but no sense at all if you weren't, like it only worked in Eastern Standard Time. Or the chairman of Click at the time, Peter Cordy, who was the third co-founder, had to be the chairman or else the entire platform didn't run, (laughs) things like that. And so we had to make some changes to adapt this into being a product that other companies could use. We launched with UWM in June 2015, and it was a great success for them, and they continue to use the platform today. I've actually renewed that initial subscription agreement out till 2030, so they continue to be a great customer of ours today, and every single team member at UWM uses our platform every day, and it's helped in a small way to power their growth to be the number one mortgage lender in the U.S. today, so that's a great mutual success story that came out of that. As that started to happen, we started to think about what would be the conditions for us to deem this a successful enough experiment that it needed to live outside of Click. So we started to add a few more customers and experiment with different industries, different company sizes, start to figure out where the software really worked well. We had the very good fortune for one of Qlik's largest pharma clients to come to us and say, we've heard about this platform you have. We have a very particular challenge in that we are launching a new blockbuster drug in the pharma industry that means over a billion dollars a year in revenue in 26 countries, and we are currently tracking that in Excel spreadsheets. So that is status quo, unfortunately, for large enterprise. I'm sure many of your listeners are immediately having cold sweats thinking about the very large program they're currently running. It's starting to twitch. (laughs) Exactly. This was actually the craziest Excel spreadsheet I've ever seen. And I've seen lots of spreadsheets in my days, but this was things like change the background color of the cell to indicate the status of the task that you were working on or copy icons out of one tab and paste them into a column in another tab to show which team is responsible for this task. It had tons of visual basic macros that broke every single time you tried to run them. So this was really sort of Excel hell on steroids, if you want to think of it that way. And so we looked at this and we said, yeah, sure, we can solve this for you. And they said, if you can, this is a a kind of a blank check problem. Because if you think about the scale of a billion dollars a year in revenue, if you miss your launch date by a day, it's several million dollars in revenue. And so They didn't really care how much it was going to cost, which is a great problem to have. And I highly recommend that you go out and find one of those problems (laughs) if you can. They are really the best kind. So we built them a new feature on top of the platform that we today call Conductor and is really what we sell today in market. And Conductor was built to solve two problems, and they will sound very familiar for anyone listening who has run an integration management office, because although they were doing a product launch, it turns out when you're running a large complex program inside of enterprise, the set of challenges remains remarkably consistent regardless of what type of program you're running. So in their case, they had a large matrixed organization. They had 26 countries, which had country leads. Each country's team was made up of a cross-discipline group of teams. And then they had team leads across that region as well. And they had to be able to look at things by country or by team. So this creates a real reporting challenge if your data is not structured properly to be able to do that. They needed to look at program execution. So your typical project portfolio management, who's doing what, what's our timeline, what's our risk and issue tracking, what are our milestone dates, what's our governance model, all of those sorts of things. And they needed to do benefits and KPI tracking. And they wanted those two structures to be in parallel. So the same teams who were working on projects and have timelines and dates can also see the KPIs they're tracking from a synergy benefits realization perspective. So that's what we built in its very nascent form at the very beginning. And it became, as I said, what we call Conductor today. In doing that, we met some consultants from Carney. They used to be called AT Carney, but now called Carney, one of the world's top management. Consulting firms, And they looked at what we built and said, this is actually what we've been looking for for the last two years as a possible platform to bring to life all of our solution delivery across our lines of business for our clients. Are you interested in forming a partnership? And so we started a partnership together in 2016. We announced it officially in 2017, along with Conductor as a product. And we've been building together ever since. We've done well over 100 installs today across their client base, all Fortune 500 and 1,000 companies around the world, across six continents, who are doing a set of things, including quite a lot of post-merger integration and integration management offices, a very typical thing for a management consulting firm like Carney to get hired for. Also including quite a lot of private equity where we've been brought in on value creation plans and value creation plans that typically will have some inorganic growth component to them, bolt on acquisitions as part of a platform play. And so you're into now more of a serial acquisition model where you're going to run the same playbook on a repeated basis. So that's where we've kind of got to today as a business, and we can talk more about that. Along the way, we also raised our Series A, and so certainly a deal there that was when we'd reached that set of conditions that we thought was the right moment to separate Sensei Labs from Click and spin it out as its own entity. And that's really the question we started off on, which was how does a services business successfully spin out a product company?
0: Yeah, I love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to slash assessment. That's slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So, really, I mean, listen, the audience, just to point out, and I want you to delve into these a little more. There were at least three deals that I heard you talk about. One is you have a spinoff. That's a deal. Second of all, you raise capital, right? That's a deal. And then you've talked about a partnership, right, with the management consulting company. So I'd love you to talk a little bit more about each of those. Obviously, not anything confidential or numbers or whatever, Mm. Conceptually, How did that work? I mean, often in spinoffs, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, obviously, do they still own a piece of it? it, Was it a full spinoff? Talk about the capital raise. And then, yeah, whatever you can share about this partnership stuff, because one of the things that I always try to bring on the show, there are a lot of shows out there that only talk about M&A or only talk about capital raising. We specifically talk about anything that's a deal, meaning for us, inorganic growth type deal, not sales, right? Right. So we talk about business partnerships, joint ventures, strategic alliances, licensing deals, all these other ways. And I think sometimes those kind of business deals are underrepresented because you hear so much about capital raising, and M&A, right? And those are deals that can really, really make a difference. So whatever you want to tell us, it's interesting about all three of those, but I definitely want to hear whatever you can share on that last one, because it's one that I often ask people, if they're trying to get into a new market or they're trying to get into an industry or particular whatever, have you thought about who already has access? So it could be a channel partner, it could be a business partner, or do you do a joint venture strategic, some sort of business partnership, however it's structured to be able to accelerate that And so many times, again, going back to mindset, they haven't, right? They're trying to do it organically. They're trying to break into a new geography or a new industry or whatever, and they're banging their heads against the wall because their organic sales efforts aren't working. But obviously, you significantly accelerated your market penetration through this relationship. So any case-
1: Uh Let's start with the capital raise and the spin out because they're very much linked together. Our condition for spinning the business out, and it's not an inexpensive thing to do properly. So we didn't want to do it unless we were sure we were going to raise capital and we needed to do it in order to raise capital. So the two are very tightly linked together. The challenge with doing this, and I would encourage anyone listening who's considering doing the same thing to take some of those steps as early as possible because there are fairly significant tax implications to taking those steps later, particularly around IP transfer. If you start building a product inside of your company today and you start to build up IP around that product and that IP becomes valuable because you have customers paying you for it in some sort of subscription or licensing model, then you're assigning a value to the IP as well as the potential R&D cost and other components that went into building that IP. And the further you go down this journey, the more valuable that IP becomes. So when you get to the point of a spin-out or a carve-out, you'll have to handle the value of that IP as part of that carve-out transaction. And it can have a fairly significant implication to the business. Not only because there's tax issues that might apply, and none of this is legal or tax advice, so please go talk to someone who actually is certified in doing these things. But generally speaking, you may have some tax issues. You may also inadvertently create an environment in which you want to take some of your team members from the parent company, put them into the spin out incentivize them with a stock option plan and ownership, which also is one of those things that's quite different between technology companies and services businesses. Rarely in services businesses, is there a concept of an employee stock option plan and ownership. Generally, if there's some sort of profit sharing model, it is actually a bonus structure or profit sharing model, not so much an equity model. And that's a difference when you move over into the more sort of technology and software side of the world. But also consider that if you start a startup today, so Corey, let's say you and I go out and start a business and we say, well, there's two of us. We're just going to split it 50-50. Great. We're co-founders of a business worth $0. So although we own 50% of the shares each, they have no value. If we transferred in now some piece of IP that might be worth at this point several million dollars, we've actually now created a value value for the business. It now has an enterprise value. And so those stock options we start granting people may be either at a strike price that is unattractive to them or potentially underwater, depending on how we've structured this and done that spin out. So if you're starting to think about this today, it may be beneficial to set up that corporate structure and build the IP in the subsidiary, even if it's 100% owned earlier in that process than you might have done otherwise. And the cost of doing that early when there isn't much to do related to the value of it is much simpler than doing this later. If you are doing it later, don't skimp on the advisors that you bring on for this. A, because as I said, there can be some pretty significant tax implications. So make sure from the accounting and tax side, you're well covered. But even possibly more importantly, that IP transfer agreement needs to be really watertight. If you're gonna go out and raise money, as a startup that has spun out and your core IP as a business came from a parent company, <laughs> you need to make sure that that IP transfer is very clean, that there's no shades of gray around that because any investors coming in are putting their money into a business built on that IP. And they're in gonna go through their due diligence cycle on that deal. They're not gonna put money in if there's any shades of gray. And if you're going to raise another round afterwards, this problem magnifies the more valuable the business becomes, because if you get from a series A to a series B, let's say you're doing 10 million in ARR now, you want to go out and raise at a seven, eight times valuation, we're talking about a a pre-money enterprise valuation of 70, 80 million dollars, someone's going to come along and want to put in a 20, 30 million dollar check their level of due diligence is going to be a lot higher than the level of due diligence that happened in an earlier round. And if they get to that point and say, oh, but it's really unclear who actually owns this IP, they're not going to put money into your business. So make sure that you're really, really tight on that if you're doing that at an early stage. One of the things we discovered in going out to raise money from a a business that was about to be a carve out, Is it creates a really strange situation where we became labeled very much as what the industry calls a tweener. We were in between a seed and series A round. And the problem was that we had built up a good amount of revenue, but we weren't a separate company and didn't have any of the processes and systems in place that you would expect a software company to have. And this is part of the carve out from services to software. So in some ways, we looked like a seed round company because we were kind of just getting started with being a software company as yeah. an entity, but we had enough revenue that we fit into the Series A category, yeah. but Series A investors didn't know what to do with us because they were thinking, I don't know how to put money into this business that still needs to build its own sales and marketing team, because typically to get to a few million dollars in revenue, you would have built those have, teams that right. at that yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was one challenge in raising the round. The second challenge was a lot of investors don't like carve-outs. And if they hear that you're a carve and they obviously will early in the conversation, it's part of the pitch, they will actually just check out of the process. The best way to think about investors in any fundraise is that they are pattern-matching machines. They yeah. look for a certain set of things to be true. And as those things are true, you move through their process. And as soon as there's a thing that's not true, if they're not emotionally bought into that deal at that point, It's like the assembly line in a factory where you hit the reject point as soon as one of those things isn't true, and you just get pinged off the line. (laughs) So you can go into fundraising and think, I'm going to do this radically differently than everybody, and I'm not going to play the game that investors are going to play, and I'm going to present the business through a different lens, and you're just not going to raise money because that's not how they operate. If you look for that pattern and you say, how do I present my business? So we check as many of those checkboxes in that pattern as possible, you'll move further into the process. And the trick here as someone raising money is how do I get to a point where this potential investor is emotionally bought into this deal? And I think this is probably true for any negotiation. I'm using fundraising as an example, but it applies really regardless of what kind of deal you're doing. If you've got the other party emotionally bought in, they believe in the team, they believe in the product, they believe in the opportunity, then they will ignore some of the patterns that you don't match. And if they're not bought in, then one of those patterns being off will get you rejected much earlier. So the thing about carve-outs is a lot of investors look at this and think, that's a lot of headache. And I don't want that headache. So what they're thinking there and the red flags for them are, I'm going to have potentially majority shareholder who created value, but is not creating value going forward, typically, right? I'm generalizing here. So. They're going to take up a ton of space on the cap table, but they're not necessarily the ones driving the value as the business continues to grow. That's one concern. The second concern is they may exert all kinds of weird control influence as a result of that position, even if they're not the majority shareholder. And so what happens if we're going really well down the road, and then one day the parent company recalls the leadership team from the subsidiary and says, sorry, we need them back for something else, and I've lost my leadership team. So those are the kinds of things they're worried about from a control perspective. Yeah. And then they're likely to be worried about whether there's enough equity in the business for the management team to take this through to the next level, That's because right. the hard work here won't be done by the parent company, it will be done by that management team who's come in. So are they gonna be looking at that potential upside with enough upside that the hard work of building this from carve out to that next stage is gonna be there? And so a lot of investors will look at this and just say, you know what, this doesn't match the pattern. I'm not interested in this deal. And they'll just pass when they hear carve out. I think having been now on the other side of carve out that they're wrong to look at it that way. And that really they want to be looking at this from the perspective of there's a huge number of tailwinds that can come out of being a carve out compared to the headwinds that exist in creating a company from the ground up. Not least of which is we as an executive team came out of having worked together for nearly a decade by the time we carved this business out. We knew each other well, tons of trust in that business. We had a very loyal set of team members who'd been working on it as a division of Click or a group within Click. So there's a lot of value in not starting that team from scratch and going out and hiring people. Also, we successfully, as leaders at Click, I sat on the senior leadership team, scaled Click to a large business. So we knew about growing businesses and culture and how to scale that and how to think about team members and attracting the right talent and all of those things that first-time entrepreneurs have to learn the hard way through doing. So I think there's a lot of great tailings there. And if I were in a position to be a series A technology investor, I think I might make a practice of going to look for carve-outs because you can get a lot of advantage as a result of that.
0: It would be interesting because going with your point that they sort of have this way of doing things. It'd be interesting to see, and I don't know of any. Particularly, I'm not saying they don't exist. I don't know everybody, but it'd be interesting to see somebody who just focused, like, let's say they decided only to do car mounts, right? Like, get great at that. Because, listen, there are pointed out some of the advantages, some of the disadvantages. I know I've seen situations where investors question whether, because you know they're so used to investing in entrepreneurs, and they look at entrepreneurs and big company management as different people. Now, you guys, I think, were able to get by that because you actually helped build. Click in the first place, right? So you were part of the entrepreneurial team that helped build Click. But sometimes there are carve-outs of spinoffs that are done with more sort of corporate hired management who haven't really, who came in later and haven't built it. So there's this concern that they really have that entrepreneurial drive journey, know how to work without the big company and the funding and the mentality and whatever, which is legitimate, but that's all part of the due diligence process. But yeah, it would be fascinating to see somebody come in and just focus in that area because they could have their check boxes, but just haven't been all about tournaments, right? You get great at that because I do think yeah, there's huge opportunities there.
1: As with anything, as long as you're aware of the watchouts and you know what to look out for and your experience has told you when we're going through due diligence, these are our clear red flags as a carve out specialist, then you could do very well in that space. And there are a lot of real advantages and not having to reinvent the wheel every time you do that. What does a really clean... IP transfer agreement look like, and that's a non-negotiable for us. If the parent's not willing to agree to this very clean carve-out structure, then we're not going to do it. at-draw parallel there to something like we've seen in the technology fundraising space around convertible notes. You kind of used to have the wild west of convertible note structures, and now everybody pretty much does a safe. If you're going to go out and raise yeah. on a note, you're going to use a safe. It's kind of a generally accepted legal structure for doing this. You could get to a similar place with a carve-out. These are the set of agreements we work from as an investor. And if you're not willing to use them, that's probably a red flag that we don't want to do this deal anyway. And you could save a lot of money on the cost of those carve-outs because it can be quite expensive if you just work off a set of standard templates for a lot of those things. So that was kind of the carve-out and the Series A together, we were very fortunate to meet some investors. Uh, Our round was led by Plymouth Growth Partners who are based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was a strange round in that we raised it during COVID and we're a Canadian company, they're in Michigan. So we're in Ontario, they're in Michigan. We are literally across a lake from each other. Yes. We didn't meet for probably a year and a half after the round closed because the border was closed because of COVID. So there was no way to meet. We actually at one point had talked about getting boats and picking a, a GPS coordinate in the middle of the lake and meeting each other. But then we figured this was gonna end up looking like some kind of very illegal transaction that we yeah, probably shouldn't do. So we decided not to, uh, to to entertain that possibility. But yeah, and, and fundraising has changed a lot because of COVID there was very much a sort of look in the whites of each other's eyes kind of mentality to this. If we can't sit across a table from each other, then we're never going to invest in your business. And what that meant as the startup side of this, not the investor side, is that dog and pony show was very real. If you wanted to raise money from a firm, you pretty much had to go and visit them. And you probably had to go several times and you had to meet with the partner and then eventually you're gonna do your pitch for the investment committee and then hopefully get a pre- And so that's a very expensive and time consuming thing. It is a very different reality to raise money now because you can just get on a bunch of Zoom calls or Teams calls and you can do all of those pitches without ever leaving your office you can do a full day of pitches to different funds. You used to have to structure this by city. We're gonna go to Boston and we're gonna meet with a bunch of Boston funds. And then we're gonna go to New York and meet with a bunch of New York funds. And now you can just do a packed day full of doing pitches. So it's much more efficient from a fundraising perspective. But anyway, our our round was led by Plymouth Growth. I am very happy to say that two years into running this business, we still love them, which I think is very rare in the Series A world. For a CEO to say we've had great experience working with them, they have been amazing board members. They have helped shape the business in a very positive way, but they're hands off when they don't need to be hands on. Yep. Same experience with our parent company, who have also been amazing. Liram sits on our board. He's been an excellent board member. The parent company has been nothing but supportive to everything that we need to do as a business, and so it's that part has just been a, a great experience, and it's set. A very high bar for us on what we would look at exactly for yeah. our next yeah. round and who yeah. would be willing to accept as investors in a series B. You
0: no, know, it's interesting. And I'm not saying we've seen plenty of them that don't work out, but I know more will folks who've been happy with their investment partners at uh, various rounds than the uninitiated, at least would think because the press, the things you hear about are the ones that go bad, right? You know, the right. ones that work and you don't really hear a lot about. So. Listen, I'd love to go even further down that road. We're going long already, but just because it's so much great content and that's okay. But we did promise the listeners to hit a little bit on this partnership with the management consulting firm. And then I want to close out with my last couple of questions. It's important enough to at least spend a few minutes on that.
1: Yeah. And Corey, I'm also happy to do a part two. If there's interest from your listeners, if they've been listening along and have questions, they'd love to see us cover. I'm happy to come back on. We can answer a bunch of questions from them. I've made an offer now to your listeners on your behalf, I guess, but if there's interest, I'm happy to come back on. Yeah. So let's talk about partnerships. Partnerships are, are a really tricky animal because they work well when your business interests are as aligned as possible, but it's very rare to find businesses that have alignment between your interests. And Figuring out where those tensions lie between your two business models is the most critical part of getting to a partnership that works successfully. You'll never find a partner that has 100% alignment because that would mean that they were you. There's no other way for you to get to 100% alignment. So when you think about the model between a software vendor and a partner, let's use a consulting partner as an example. It really applies to any professional service business. And our partnership with Carney has been an amazing foundation for us to build a very successful partner program on where we now work with other consultants and systems integrators and others. There's a a lot of common parallels though in the professional service business. So let's use management consulting as an example. Your partner will never care as much about selling your software as they will about selling their services. The only way that you might find someone who cared as much about selling your software as you is if they were a reseller and the only thing they sold was your product. But that's never going to exist out there. And so as soon as they have two SKUs that they're selling, then 50% of their attention is divided between those two SKUs. And the reality, if you're talking about the reseller market, is they have a 1,000 SKUs or 10,000 SKUs. Right. And you're never going to be as important to them as somebody else in that set of SKUs. Even if you get to be their largest reseller and you're their largest vendor, you still don't dominate 100% of their attention. And so you have to think about this as you are much more important to yourself than you are to your partners. In a services model, they are built and structured, their compensation plans are built and structured around selling services, whatever their service is. So if their partners are out selling, and typically professional service firms follow a partner-based structure, it may not be partner ownership, there may be some complications behind the scenes, but essentially most professional service firms follow a model where there's a partner, that partner runs a fiefdom within the firm, they are usually responsible for their own sales. It's a sort of eat what you kill model. So they go out and they sell and whatever they sell is what their team does. And they typically have some sort of revenue commitment to the partnership where they have to deliver at least a certain volume per year. They will have some people under them. Those people will have different titles depending on what type of partnership you're selling with. And so they will probably not be the ones who are doing any of the implementation work, but they're the ones who are out there closing the big deals. Their entire comp model is built on selling services. So when you come along and you build a partnership together, they will never care about selling your software. They will only ever care about selling their services. They tend to be very mercenary about that. And it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what their model suggests that they should do. If you follow the money in any model, it's a good way of figuring out what people's aligned behaviors are going to be. Doesn't mean they're not nice people. We love the partners that we work with, but fundamentally bottom line for them, they get compensated on selling services, not on selling software. You need to figure out how Selling your software helps them sell more services. And that's what I mean by alignment between your business models. Because if your software is just an add-on and it's kind of annoying and it's an extra thing that they have to talk to their clients about, and maybe it even puts their deals somewhat at risk because it's this extra cost they have to figure out how to explain, they will never sell any of what you do. Yeah. But if you can align yourself to helping them to sell more, then they will happily sell your software as part of that. Yes. Yes. So what does helping them sell more look like? In our case, when we work with partners, it actually means helping them sell more when they're in sales mode. So they will use our platform conductor, they'll build out a pre-configuration or a templating conductor, we call them fast starts. So they'll take one of their service deliveries. Let's talk about a management consulting firm that's doing merger integration. They'll build out a fast start around what does an integration management office typically look like, the structure of the work streams and projects and tasks they need to do, the KPIs they need to track, the dashboards and reporting they're gonna wanna represent that on, maybe even some workflows. We have a no code workflow tool. They'll structure all of that as a fast start. Think of that as their IP, in our platform. They always own that. It's owned by our partners completely. And they'll go out and use that in sales pitches. Our partners find that when they pitch their services with conductor as part of the offering versus the times when they don't, they typically close about 20% more business with conductor. That's Mm -hmm. a huge difference Mm -hmm. to a consulting firm. And what they find is often in the places where they weren't the incumbent. So when they're going head to head with another firm, that's where they'll close more business with conductor. I think having spent a lot of time looking at this and talking to our partners and understanding why it's a confidence factor when they go in and they aren't the incumbent, the incumbent is most likely going to win that next piece of business. It's a sort of better, the devil, you know, kind of piece to that. We've worked with them before. We know where, you know, they're good, where they're bad, but at least we know. And okay, we're just going to go with them again. When you're head-to-head on a services business, typically your pricing is not that different than your competitors. Your set of services aren't that different than your competitors. You've got got a slide in your deck that explains how you're going to deliver this. Your competitor has a different slide. It's the same thing in the end. So incumbent typically wins. If you go in with something that really differentiates you, that gives your prospect the confidence to make that decision to not go with the incumbent because they look at this and say, okay, you've clearly done this before. You've got a structure to how you run this. We're going to be able to hold you accountable through this platform. Yeah. Let's take a risk here and go with someone we haven't worked with before. The other way you can help win more business for them is what happens in the engagement and after the engagement. So as a services business, and this is really important if you come from the software world, cause you won't necessarily understand this part of the services business. We have an advantage in that. I came from the software world, went into the services business and then went back to software. So I understand both sides of this. If you're from the software world, what you may not understand is you're always selling your next engagement. So you might sell in a million dollars worth of consulting or $10 million worth of consulting, on this integration management, but it has an expiry date on that. And you've now got to go out and hustle for that next few million dollars worth of consulting or hundreds of thousands worth of consulting because when this engagement's done, your team starves if there isn't another thing for you to do. So helping you win more business up front is great, but helping you win more business downstream in that client relationship is even better because that's where you effectively get into a subscription model. If you can keep that client coming back, and they keep recognizing the value that you're providing, then you will more easily sell them more work than you would a new client that you have to go out and chase and pursue. So selling more business to existing clients is always less expensive as a services business than it is to sell new business to new clients. If you're in the software side of this, you can think of that as NRR versus ARR. It's always easier to keep the NRR going and keep those renewals and upsells than it is to close the new logos on the other side yeah, no question. About so it can be both sides of that piece. And that's when you get to real alignment. If you can help them to grow their business, then they will look at you as a magic superpower, not as an extra tax and cost that they have to figure out how to justify.
0: Love that. That's such a brilliant tip. and People in other industries can really apply that. I always talk about, hey, you can always figure out where you're adding value to them. And and your point is more so it's not like they may see that at the higher level, but you got the people who are actually the ones who are out in the field selling your product. What's the benefit to them? not necessarily the CEO and decided, oh, this could be another revenue source for us, but the people look at it as a headache. So that's a, that's a great example. So listen, I'd love to delve into so much more with you, but we are over time here and we're on perfect time is what I'll say, because everything you've done has been so valuable. I'm sure the audience, I mean, this is one of these interviews that is just packed with the takeaways and things that people can apply. So we will wrap it up here for now. My second last question is just, People want to find out more information about you and your company and books or anything else you want to promote, uh, where should they go?
1: Yeah, you can find the company at labs.com, S-E-N-S-E-I-L-A-B-S.com. You can also find us on whatever social network you look for. We're particularly active on LinkedIn, so you can find us there. We do a regular webinar series for people who are interested in the topic of orchestration. It's what Conductor does for Transformation Management Office or Integration Management Office. You can find more information about those webinars on our website as well. I am Jay Goldman on pretty much every social network out there, J-A-Y-G-O-L-D-M-A-N. So you can find me and we can continue the conversation there or uh, convince Corey to have me back on and we'll answer all the questions we we didn't get to in part one. There we go. I
0: love that. My final question on the podcast Jay, is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression for all people in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for 35 years and haven't had a boss and never want one. (laughs) What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business?
1: That's a good question. Freedom underlies so much of the society that we live in. I am very happy to call Canada home. I think it's one of the best countries in the world. I wasn't actually born here, though. We were South African, and I was born in Johannesburg. And freedom in a very oppressive regime, like apartheid era South Africa, was a very different thing than growing up in a country like Canada. My parents made the decision to emigrate, when I was born and they looked at the world that they would be raising me in. And not so much the freedoms that we may not have enjoyed or enjoyed, but they had lots of black friends who they couldn't go to restaurants with and they couldn't spend time with in public. And they didn't have nearly the same freedoms for their children as my parents would have had for me. And they made the decision that that wasn't an environment that they wanted to raise children in and so they made the decision to leave. It was a difficult decision. The South African government at the time was really trying to prevent people from leaving the country, and so they had in place all kinds of restrictions on how much money you could take out and how easy it was to leave. Most other countries had restrictions in place. The Canadian government certainly did, where you couldn't pursue a citizenship without giving up your South African citizenship. And that's a hard decision to make if you were born in a country, much as you may not like the regime that's in charge. It's still your place of birth. And my parents decided that Canada was a much better place to raise children, to have the kinds of opportunities that they wanted to have. Toronto has a quite large South African expat population. It's one of the largest in the world. So that makes landing there a little bit easier, but really they made that decision largely around freedom and the freedom for everybody, as you said, to live in a culture and an environment where everyone has the same freedoms and the same opportunities. And so that's really part of my life story. I was very young, obviously have no South African accent. I was about 18 months when we immigrated to Canada. And my sister who is younger than me was born in Canada, but I don't take that for granted, maybe in the same way that people who are born into that kind of environment do, because I know what that sort of impact is and what that means to have those opportunities. What a beautiful story
0: and what a great way to end the great podcast. Uh, Jay, thanks for being such a great guest on the Quest podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to wwwcorycupfercom slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.